What's going on, friends of the Rockman cast? For this episode, we're going to cover Stephen Ambrose's book, Citizens Soldiers, a book that covers the United States invasion of Germany from June 7th, 1944 to May 7th, 1945, the end of World War II. We'll cover the Normandy landings, the hedgerow fighting, the Winter War. We'll even give you a Bach, a JS Bach organ piece that you should play on YouTube or Spotify. And we'll talk a little bit about what it was like to be a soldier in the trenches in World War II. You know, I go to a lot of bookstores, and especially when I go to Barnes and Noble, I usually go to the history section. And usually there's some like old dude checking out the Stephen Ambrose's books. And I think he kind of gets a bad rap. But the bottom line is Stephen Ambrose is probably one of the best, not only military historians, but one of the best popular historians of the 20th century and one of the greatest figures related to documenting the stories of World War II. And I don't know about you, but when you think of World War II, you kind of think of a lot of flashbulb moments. You know, you have Pearl Harbor, and then you have the North African campaign when um, when George S. Patton comes to the fore. Then you have the Italian campaign of 1943. Then you got the D-Day landing. And then you got the end of the war. And well, I guess you got the Battle of the Bulge, which happened December of 1944. But you kind of that, that time between D-Day and then you get the Battle of the Bulge and then you get the end of the war kind of is all of a blur. So if you really want to get a sense of how difficult it was, it's very easy to hyperlink from event to event to event. And then, of course, with in the Japan theater, it ended, you know, the Battle of Midway and then Battle of the Philippine Sea and then Okinawa, Iwo Jima, Okinawa, the atomic bomb, the war is over. So there's these, there, there are these incredible theaters of war, but if you really want to get a sense of what it was really like from the from the private's view, the, the soldier actually fighting the the battle. You got to read this book, Citizen Soldiers, um, because it will give you the sights, the taste, the smell, the fear, uh, just a sense of what it was like and how difficult it was. Because you know, one of the things when we all study history. We all have an outcome bias, which is we know what happened at the end of the war. Like we beat the Germans, the Russians came into Berlin, the Allies prevailed, and the war was over. But when you read this book, you just get a sense of how uncertain it was that possibly the war could have ended in a stalemate. It could have been like what's going on in the Ukraine and especially when we get a lot of politicians like Nikki Haley and Joe Biden that talk about the United States supporting Ukrainians, they always talk about the World War II example to justify American intervention in the Ukraine. It's easy to remember that this kind of stalemate situation can be the norm in a lot of military encounters. World War II did not experience that. Um, but it easily could have. And this just shows all the different variables that went into fighting the war, 
um, winning the individual battles, how difficult it was to get from the beaches of Normandy um, into northern France, and then to turn northeast towards northwestern Europe with, with Belgium and, and Holland and into past the Siegfried Line. And have you ever heard the Maginot Line that was placed on the um, to the west of the Ardennes Forest that was built by the French? Well, the Germans had this um, defense system called the Siegfried Line, except it was put together by these badass German engineers, and it was every bit the impenetrable, impenetrable blockade that the man that the Maginot Line, except the Germans were much, much better engineers, and they set up this incredible killing machine, and the Germans were man for man, probably the best soldiers of World War II. I mean, these guys were freaking badass sons of bitches. And then the industrial might, even though the Germans have been bombed all the hell for the last five years um, since the start of the war, um, but their industrial capacity was still incredible. So let's take you to this book because I think this is, um, so to read this book is to really experience what it was like from the point of view of the private. Um, and, and, and I think a lot of times you get the D-Day invasion, but you don't really think about the D-Day invasion was successful. They established a toehold. But this kind of gets into all this time period afterwards in terms of how difficult it was to actually get into France. Because they also easily could have, it could have been Dunkirk in reverse. Remember Dunkirk in 1940 when the Germans had invaded um France and they basically pushed the Brits back. The Germans easily could have done that in World War II. And the fear was is that Germany could have essentially pinned the Allies back and pushed them back into the sea. And if that were the case, who knows? It could have been stalemate. So it starts literally June 7th, 1944. I have not read D-Day, um, but I'm going to read D-Day. And so Ambrose takes us there and he basically, and so I'm, I'm going to read some passages just to give you a flavor of how awesome it was. And stay tuned. You're also going to get a JS Bach recommendation later on on this podcast. So it's going to be totally awesome. So here it is. Stephen um, Ambrose takes us literally to the bluff over Omaha Beach. And you can just see it's, it's kind of like, you know, I just read Mark Bowden's book, um, Hue in 1968. This is just as descriptive, just as visual. Um, I would say that um, I'd say Bowden's, Bowden's a little bit better writer than Stephen Ambrose, but, but Ambrose is a freaking badass writer. There's a reason why he sold me books. It's that at dawn, all along the plateau above the bluff at Omaha, GIs shook themselves awake, did their business. In other words, took a shit, ate some rations, smoked a cigarette. I don't know if they had any whiskey, probably took a shot of whiskey, got into formation, prepared to move out to broaden the beachhead. But in the hedgerows, individuals got lost. Squads got lost. German sniper fire came from all directions. The Norman farm homes made of stone and surrounded by stone walls and a stone, a stone barn made excellent fortresses. Probing attacks brought forth a stream of bullets from the Germans, pretty much dis discouraging further probes. Brigadier General Norman Dutch Coda, assistant division commander of the 29th, came on a group of infantry pinned down by some Germans at a farmhouse. He asked the captain in command why the men were making no effort to take the building. 
person replied, sir, the Germans are in there trying to shoot at us, the captain replied. Well, I'll tell you what, captain, said Coda, buckling two grenades from his jacket. You and your men start shooting at them. I'll take a squad of men, and you and your men can watch carefully. I'll show you how to take a house with Germans in it. Coda led his squad around a hedge to get as close as possible to the house. Suddenly, he gave a whoop and raced forward, the squad following, yelling like wild men as they tossed grenades into the windows. Coda, another man, kicked in the front door, tossed a couple of grenades inside, waited for the explosion, then dashed out of the house. The surviving Germans inside were streaming out the back door, running for the lives. Coda returned to the captain. You see how to take a house. And the general, still out of breath, you understand? You understand how to do it now, boy? And he said, yes, sir. He said, I won't be around to do it again. I can't do it for, for, for everybody. And so that just gives you a flavor of how freaking awesome this book. And then he gets into kind of the next stage, which was this concept of the German hedgerows. So in Normandy, in kind of the feudal estates, the way that they divided land were by these little mounds of dirt with trees planted to kind of act as boundaries between each individual farm within these old feudal estates. The difficulty in World War II is that made it extremely difficult, and the Germans knew these inside and out. They took over France in 1940, and so they had years to plan their defenses, their tactics, and their strategy. So I live in a part of the country that kind of looks like northern France. One difference is, is, the, is the farms are much bigger, and they're not so divided so carefully as they are in Normandy. The question is, is how do you get in past these hedgerows because they had tanks, they had snipers, they had machine gun nests, and a lot of them were concealed. So it was even hard for air cover to, um, to get through to these hedgerows. And they didn't even know where the Germans were a lot of times. And so a lot of these tactics were kind of developed on the spot. And, and Ambrose describes some amazing combat scenes related to what happened. In some cases, it involved hand-to-hand -hand combat. And he also identifies a hero named Lieutenant Colonel Robert Cole of the... I, I thought, oh my God, did they say the name Rockney Cole? Is there another Rockney Cole out there? No, it's Robert Cole. And he describes a hedgerow encounter... Um, in France, in, in Normandy, just after the D-Day invasion. It said, Cole was 29 years old. He was an Army brat, 1939 West Point graduate, born and trained to lead. On D-Day, he had gathered up 75 men, moved out to Utah Beach, shot up some Germans along the way, and was at the dude line to welcome men from the 4th Division coming ashore. From June 7th, he had been involved in the attack on Carentan. The climax came on June 11th. This is when Robert Cole let out a whole bunch of whoop-ass, that's my comment, on the Germans. Cole was leading some 250 men down a long, exposed causeway. At the far end was a bridge over the Dove River. Beyond that bridge was the link-up point with units from the 29th Division from Omaha. The causeway, and that's Omaha Beach, where they had just landed. The causeway was a meter or so above the marshes on the other side. On the far side of the inland marsh, about 150 meters away, there was a hedgerow occupied by some badass Germans. 
it's probably like Heinrich and Heinrich and Christian and Dieter, Dieter were there. And they were about to try to kick the shit out of the Americans. That's my addition. And once, it's so he had 250 men down along the causeway. Causeway was a meter or so above the marshes on the other side with these badass Germans. Once coal was committed along the causeway, the German machine gunners, riflemen, and mortarmen along open fire. <laughs> Just totally kicking ass. Cole's battalion took a couple dozen casualties. The survivals huddled along the bank on the far side of the causeway. They should have kept mo moving, but the hardest lesson in combat is to keep moving. It's every instinct makes a soldier want to hug the ground. Cole's men did. And over the next hour, the Germans dropped mortars in the battalion, causing further casualties. Whenever an American tried to move up down the causeway, he drew rifle and machine gun power. For yet another half hour, the GIs were pinned down. Then finally, Cole could take no more. He passed out an order seldom heard in World War II. Fix the bayonets. Up and down the line, he could hear the click of bayonets being fitted to rifle barrels. Cole's pulse was racing. God, I kind of like this Cole. I think he's a real stud. His adrenaline pumping. He pulled his 45 caliber pistol, jumped into the causeway, shouted a command in so loud a voice he could be heard in the din of battle. Charge, let's go kill those motherfucking Germans. He didn't actually say that. He just said, charge. Turned into the hedgerow and began plunging through the march. His men watched, fearful, excited, impressed, and inspired. First single figures rose and began to follow Cole. Then small groups of two and three, then whole squads running forward, flashing the cold steel their bayonets. The men began to roar as they charged, their own version of the rebel yell. The Germans fired and cut down some, but not enough. Cole's men got into the hedgerow, plunged into the dugouts and trenches, thrusting their bayonets, drawing blood and screams, causing death and kicking the shit out of those Germans. That's, what, that's my contribution. Those Germans who dodged the bayonets ran out of the back way and fled to the rear. Paratroopers took them under fire and dropped a dozen more. Cole stood there. Shaking, exhausted, elated. Around him, the men began to cheer, then added to the Civil War atmosphere of the scene. After the cheering subsided, Cole got his men down the causeway to the bridge and over to the side of the Douve River. There, the following day, Omaha and Utah beaches linked up. So that just shows you what it was actually like and you know i think all of us kind of wonder um how would we respond in con combat i mean we all like to think that we would be robert cole major stud of utah beach and omaha beach but it's hard to know you know they say um i know um they say that whoever's good in combat is always extremely difficult to predict. Some of the people that you think are going to be the baddest of bad badasses totally panic and quiver. And sometimes you can see people that you would think would be the nerd of all nerds and are kind of loners and you wouldn't think they would be badass soldiers, but they're absolutely cool under fire. And they can actually do really well under combat. Now, it looks like Cole was the type of guy that you would have expected, but you never know. Sometimes it's the people who you think are going to be totally wimps. And they totally took charge. 
and made it happen. And, you know, I think oftentimes when you talk about any type of war, it is easy to forget what actually happens during war. We all know people die. But to see what these men went through and to experience what they did firsthand, and can you imagine the intensity of the hand-to-hand combat? This is just like right out of a movie, and this is actually what happened. How would you respond if you were in that situation? When you're having a difficult day, think of these men. Sometimes I think about that when I'm really stressed out. I'm like, oh, my gosh, think about the men on Utah Beach. Omaha Beach. I mean, how scary that must have been sitting in one of those boats with the ocean waves coming over, knowing that as soon as that door dropped following the whistle, you've seen the private writing, Ryan's um, scene. Oh my gosh. And that was based largely on descriptions that um, Stephen Ambrose had. And it's just think about what that would have been like. So that kind of, so that's just kind of a sample of how awesome the book is in terms of Northern France. But then, and he gets into a little, he doesn't really get a ton into like the liberation of Paris and uh, in taking Northwest France and how that all occurred. But he does get into the difficulties. And basically what um, got them through the hedgerows and got United States military through Northern France was his air superiority. At that time in the war, the Allied forces had near total air superiority, which means that Germany really couldn't field hardly any combat aircraft. So assuming that they were able to get the good visuals on the Germans in terms of where they were, they could totally get rid of the supply trains and um, basically stop the Germans from being able to supply themselves. If you can't get supplies, you know, it's, I've heard it famously said that um, professionals, um, amateurs discuss strategy and action scenes and professionals discuss lo- logistics. Same thing in the Battle of Way and same thing in the battle um, for Northwest Europe. Germany couldn't field their um, logistics and it was largely because of air power that they were able to um, win that portion of the war and to a large degree because they just kicked the shit out of them. They just they would just bomb after bomb after bomb. And it also has given me a new respect for Ike you know, Dwight Eisenhower, you think of him as kind of this just kind of happy-go-lucky guy that, you know, it doesn't seem too um, too badass, but Ike was kind of a badass, cold-blooded killer. So he's kind of a classic American, kind of like U.S. Grant. Really nice guy, but you don't want to fucking mess with him. And he can be a total badass. So it takes us then from, you get a sample of the, the hedgerows, northern France, And then he gets into Northwest Europe. And one of the really interesting things about the Battle of the Bulge, which occurs in December, basically started December 16th, um, 1944, is that between the time the Allies liberated Paris in August of 1944 into the September and October, they made a significant, significant amount of progress so much so that they were almost bordering German territory. And at that time, they thought that the German military was on the verge of collapse and that they may surrender. So they were thinking that the war could be over by Christmas. Hitler, at that point, was fighting a two-front war, made basically a mad gamble. And that's when the Battle of the Bulge occurred, is that he basically said, as I said, professional study or focus on logistics, amateurs discuss strategy. 
at the time in December of 1944, when they'd gotten through the hedgerows and gone to Northwest Europe, the German, the United States was really kicking ass. They had secured the port of Antwerp, which was the key supply channel for the Allied forces um, in Belgium. And this allowed them to basically continually resupply the troops, which was, of course, going to be critical to being able to win the war. And Hitler basically took a gamble. He said, they're not ready for us. No one would think that we could um, attack. If we can secure the port of Antwerp, we can, I think we can do it in four days, like a Blitzkrieg 2.0, and they can't supply their troops. It's basically a stalemate. And if it's a stalemate and they can't move and they can't supply their troops, maybe we can persuade the, um, we can hold off on the Western Front and maybe we can persuade or realign our forces for Eastern Europe to convince the Russians to sue for peace. That was at least the strategy. But that led to the Battle of Bulge, in which he basically threw one last roll at the dice and put division upon division in the um, Ardennes Forest, which no one thought was passable. And so it was very lightly defended. And they basically knocked the Allied forces on their ass. So the remainder of the book is really about what it was like to be a frontline soldier, um, December, January. February of uh, 1944 into 1945, and how intense the fighting was. I mean, the, the war was going to be over in five months. But again, at that time, they didn't know that. And based upon this battle, they were thinking, God, maybe maybe it is going to be a stalemate. Maybe we're not going to be able to break through. And so it gets into this. And, you know, one of the things, like a lot of you are going to get together with your family members and have Thanksgiving dinner is that this time in the war, they were still drafting men in mass and then training them and then putting them into theater and they weren't getting a shit ton of training. So if you could imagine having Christmas dinner or Thanksgiving dinner with your uncle Earl and your family and kind of eating too much and having that little experience, men were being deployed from that, you know, and they'd have a little break before they would leave. They would be then posted to Antwerp. They would be shuttled into the front line based with hardly any training at all. And it just talks about what that was actually like. You know, those days in January when it's so fucking cold, you just you hardly even know what to think. And you think about, oh my gosh, this is just incredible about how cold it is. And it said, um, and it's just thinking, what would it be like to actually have to be out there? And not only that, possibly being killed. So this is kind of a sample of what it was like to be on the Western Front in January 1945. It's a night's range from zero degrees Fahrenheit to minus 10 and lower. Men without shelter other than a foxhole or heat other stayed awake, stomping their feet through the 14-hour night where they froze. Major Harrison, one of his most vivid memories of that night, the sight of GIs pressed against the hot stones of the walls of burning houses as flames came out the roof and windows. They were not hiding from Germans. They were trying to get warm. The GIs and the Germans opposite them went through worse physical misery than the men of Valley Forge. Washington troops had tents, some huts, fires to warm by and provide hot food. They were not involved in the continuous battle. By contrast, the conditions in Northwest Europe in January 1945 were as brutal as any in history, including the French and German retreats from Moscow in midwinter 1812 and 1941. And aside, 
when we talk about the Russian-Ukraine conflict, if we're going to use history as our guide and the NATO view that, oh, it's totally bullshit. They have no security justification at all. Well, this just describes two other times Western Europe invaded the French in 1812, Germans in 1941. Invasion was a realistic prospect, and as he even demonstrates here. But it said in this battle, the Germans were not retreating. They fought back against the American advance, which could barely move forward anyway in the ice and snow, forcing the Americans to pay the highest price for taking the territory lost in the bulge. And here's where it gets into Eisenhower. So fucking, he, he, was, he was a badass. But, but the generals from Eisenhower on down insisted that the AEF go on the offensive. Eisenhower had under his command 73 divisions. Of the total, 49 were American, 12 British, 3 Canadian, 1 Polish, and 8 French. He had 49 infantry, 20 armored, and 4 airborne divisions. At this rate, the Germans had 76 divisions. Some were second rate, some traveled by horse or foot, but all were under strength. A few were excellent. So there were special units composed of extremely good type of young soldier with high morale and considerable faith in victory. Some adopted the view that in either case of victory or death, since nothing left if Germany lost the war. Volk's grenadier divisions rather mixed, but generally good German soldiers fighting with great determination and bravery. Desertions were few. So at that time, regardless of what you think of Hitler, they were fighting to defend their home from a foreign invasion. And here the other thing is that in contrast to when they were in France, in the Battle of the Bulge, Germans were literally fighting from the German border. So their supply lines were right there, and they were being able to supply directly by the homeland, the motherland. So that's going to give you just a, just a taste of how freaking intense the war was. And then I'll give you one last like little taste of what it was like to be in the um, frontline combat. And I promise to give you an organ recommendation um, by J.S. Bach. It reminds me of my choir director, Weston Noble. He was at Luther College from, I think, 1949 or 48 to 19 or 2003, I think, is when he retired. But he was in the Battle of the Bulge. There's a lot of farm kids in the Battle of the Bulge, and part is because of their familiarity. One, he was small. But the other thing was his familiarity with tractors. So the thought process is if you knew how to fix and um, take care of a tractor, you could probably drive a tank. So this passage reminds me of Weston Noble. It's an individual movement by day was dangerous. At night, trucks rolled up on both sides, bringing ammunition and food, carrying out wounded. The houses, public building, and the church were in ruins. The dead, some 100 civilians, lay in the streets. There was hand-to-hand -hand fighting with knives, room-to-room -room fighting with pistols, rifles, and bazookas. Attacks and counterattacks took place regularly. Here, as an aside, you know, I loved Private um, Saving Private Ryan, but it was so historically accurate. Remember there was that one scene where there was that hand-to-hand -hand fighting between that character that you were kind of invested in and the German soldier, and it ended with that German soldier winning and then gradually just sticking the knife through the guy as he killed him. That was freaking so intense. But there was hand-to-hand. -hand. So some of the Battle of the Bulge was long-range artillery, but some of it was up close and personal so that you would go through these ruins of churches to imagine just kind of a 
the dynamic that that had, you know, going through the church and these small little towns have been decimated. That's that on January 21st, 7th Army ordered the much depleted 79th to retreat from Rittershofen. The Americans abandoned the Maginot Line and fell back on a new position around the Motor River. Luck only realized that they had gone in the morning. He walked around the village, unbelieving. At the church, he had crawled through the wreckage to the altar, which lay in ruins. Luck directed one of his men to tread the bellows, sat down at the organ, and played Bach's Corral. The donke, donke ele got. The sound resounded throughout the village. German soldiers and civilians of Ritterhoven gathered, knelt, prayed, and sang. Fifty years later, I was in Rittershofen with Luck and a half dozen of his men, along with some American veterans of the battle. The mayor invited Luck to the new church, sat him down at the organ, and once again played. he played Bach. Overall, the Northwind Offensive was a failure. The Germans never got near Strasbourg, nor did they cut the American supply lines. It cost a number of casualties. Seventh Army's losses were 11,000 casualties, plus 283 six of trench foot, and Germans lost around 23,000 killed, wounded, and missing. So I hope this kind of gives you a, a taste of what this book is like. It gets into the randomness of who died, who lived, what it was like to be a replacement soldier, the fear, the conditions. Um, there's some very descriptive hand-to-hand -hand combat that's described. And I think it's just, you know, as we think about this generation, I think Tom Brokaw called them the greatest generation. I think when we think of what makes a culture strong and what makes a culture weak, it's just good to remember that war is, is intense. And it's not something that should be done lightly, but the culture has to be ready to fight it. And all of the citizens have to be ready and prepared to deploy to defend it. And unfortunately, we, we live in a culture now that the men and women who fight are disconnected from the power brokers and the power brokers actually enrich themselves as we get closer and closer to war. So this is just something that I think it's good to remind ourselves. It's good just to remember how freaking talented a writer Stephen Ambrose was. You know, he got, there are some jealous academics that accused him of plagiarism. I think it's total bullshit. He, he quoted them, he attributed them, but he didn't like put quotes around um, where he had lifted passages but don't, don't be distracted by that. There's a reason why he's one of the great writers of the 20th century. I think at some point I'm going to read uh, his biography of Dwight Eisenhower. Because I think of like, you know, I said I'm a Republican. It kind of begs the question. When you decide, and, and for a lot of time I railed against, quote unquote, I like Ike Republicans. But I think of like U.S. Grant as Republican, Dwight Eisenhower as Republican, of course, Ronald Reagan. Um, Republican, to some degree, Richard Nixon. But I come to respect more and more Dwight Eisenhower because basically his mix of toughness, pragmatism, and idealism, coupled with actual experience. But this basically shows, you know, what a tough soldier he was. I mean, he knew that there were a lot of men getting killed. And even Ambrose was pretty hard on Eisenhower in terms of the decisions that they made, the casualties that they took. But I'm sure Eisenhower would respond and say, look, I mean, this, this is war. This is what happens in war. And war is not pretty. It's not pleasant. It is something that should not be taken lightly. And so I, I don't criticize Ike. I don't criticize the decisions that he made because he did the best that he could under the circumstances. And he did lead the country, not only through World War II, 
But through the 1950s, which we kind of had this halcyon view of the 1950s, but it is um, something that is, I think we really forget how scary it was. And Ike led us through this process. And, and so I think, and, and of course with um, Stephen Ambrose, I think one of his most famous books was on Dwight Eisenhower. That's how Stephen Ambrose came to the came to the fore. So I hope you found these kind of detour. I've been these are some of the books that I've been reading. Um, right now I'm reading a book on Elon Musk. So I'll probably do one on Elon Musk because I think it's just there's a lot of lessons you can learn on Elon Musk. But I think for these great writers like Mark Bowden, like Stephen Ambrose, I do want to see. I've seen the World War II Museum in Fredericksburg, Museum, uh, Fredericksburg, Texas. That's the War of the Pacific Museum. There's another World War II museum that was founded by Stephen Ambrose. It's in New Orleans. So I think I'd really like to do that sometime because I think Ambrose is one of these guys that is just such a good writer. And he obviously loves his topic. You know, he was only 66 when he died. He died in 2002. He's actually two years younger than my dad. And my dad was born in 1934. So he looked old too. It's you know, like when you're 48, like I am, and you look at Stephen Ambrose, I'm like, holy shit, he looked old. But I think it's because of all the smokes. I think when he'd go out on hikes, he would smoke a lot of cigarettes, drink a lot of coffee. So, well, friends, I hope you enjoyed this particular episode as much as I did in putting it off. I, I don't know. I pick topics that interest me. And if you're interested in them, great. I, I hope you find this book interesting. Um, I hope you buy it. I'll probably check out, I'll put a link in the uh, show notes. Uh, but do read it. Stephen Ambrose, Citizen Soldiers. Great book. I think I'm also going to be getting D-Day here pretty soon so we can you know, get my World War II fix. Um, and I hope you read Way 1968, and that's on your to-read list as well. So that's it for this episode of the Rocky Cast. Um, I think I might be doing some upcoming episodes on um, your Uncle Earl versus the epidemiologist, you know, because we all have Uncle Earl at Thanksgiving events, you know, just, just kind of know it all blowhard. My, my theory is, is that Uncle Earl is actually a better decision maker than a Harvard-educated epidemiologist. So, um, and we'll kind of do a meditation on why that is case, why Uncle Earl is actually a pretty damn good decision maker and why I trust Uncle Earl. And I don't want Uncle Earl to do my surgery, but I do trust Uncle Earl quite a bit. I, I think his shoot from the hip analysis has its virtue and getting bogged down in some of these peer-reviewed studies actually um, can be a limitation sometimes. So I may even come out as anti-science, but it's going to be nuanced anti-scientists. So I don't want you to think like, oh my God, Rocky just like science. No, I'm just going to talk about the virtues of Uncle Earl. So hopefully you find that interesting. Please give me a positive review on Apple, Spotify, and all places where um, podcasts are heard. Recommend me your friends, your dog, your mom, your cat. Um, whoever likes interesting ideas. So that's it for this episode of the Rocking Cast. I'm about ready to do a little rocking, get some work in, and um, take my dad to an appointment. And we will go from there. So thank you so much for tuning in on the Rocking Cast. Until next time, you and I see each other on the Rocking Cast. <laughs>